Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Good. If you have a Bible, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. This morning, Revelation 2, 12 through 17. You can uh, scan the QR code if you want to go about it that way and join us uh, electronically as well. Thanks for being here this morning in person. We've got some ushers coming down the aisles. If you need a Bible, slip a hand up and they would love to get one in your hands you can use this morning. Good morning to traditions, those joining us online and kindred as well. Different places, uh, worshiping the same God, believing the truth of the same scripture. Today we'll be looking at the third letter of seven letters written to the churches mentioned in Revelations chapter two and chapter three. And when I started this series, I I, kind of introduced it this way. Each letter contains uh, words of encouragement and all but one, the one that Pastor Jonas preached on last week, contains correction. Each letter uh, offers this, this promise to him who overcomes, meaning to win or to prevail in the face of obstacles is the idea behind that. And the message of each of the letters identify the kinds of struggles that even we today can identify with that that we face and they teach us how to overcome. When each of my kids was learning to drive, uh, there were two things that were important. And uh, the first thing was that they all knew how to drive a stick shift. How many of you can drive a manual? You know, quite a few of us, right? But, but I thought it was important to them, even though they didn't necessarily have a manual to drive, although one of them did, I said, let's hop in the car. We went to the church parking lot. And I thought, if we're gonna die, it, in church parking lot's not a bad place to do it. <clears throat> and so we got them in the church parking lot and we would teach them how to shift and the, the different pedals and what they mean. And then we eventually go out on the road. And then as they were driving, I would say, I would call out um, warning signs. I would say, hey, okay, here's the shape of this sign. Here's the color. You tell me what it, what it means as we were going along. And I said, a yellow circle with an X through it means, wow. <laughs> yellow circle with an X through it means, Railroad, right? And then there was this house-shaped sign that kind of went up and, and then it had people on it and it was school crossing, right? Yeah. And then there was a red hexagon, which means it's an octagon. Gotcha. We would all agree that while driving, no matter whether someone is just learning or whether you've been driving for many years for a very long time, recognizing and knowing the warning signs may keep us from suffering consequences of not paying attention. Today, in a similar way, we will see some warning signs and consequences for not paying attention. So verse 12, the first idea is this, know him. It says this, to the church in Pergamum, to the angel, which means remember as a messenger to each church, to the church of Pergamum write this. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. So we'll stop, stop right there. Pergamum, also known as the, the greatest city in Asia Minor in that day, had the first temple that was dedicated to Caesar and the city was, was very progressive in their cultic worship. Pergamum's most popular tourist attraction was the temple of the God of healing. And so when people knew that and they found out about it, people would come from everywhere to come to this temple in hopes that they would be be healed, some, some miraculous cure. And the symbol for this God was an entangled serpent on a staff. Something worth noting is that Satan is also, many times in scripture, is mentioned as a serpent. 
One of those places is 2 Corinthians 11.3 says this, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This was a city that was being deceived and led astray by the evil one very clearly. They were not living in the truth of who God is. Their trust and hope were, were directed to false worship and to false gods. Last week, uh, Lori and I were in New Orleans and Baton Rouge area for a conference. And one afternoon, we decided to venture down to the famous French Quarter for lunch. And as we walked along the streets, um, there were people in different shops and stuff. And and this one guy comes out and they they gave us this free little sample of some soap, but he kind of lured us into the shop. And so we went in and and, uh, it was all about... um, fixing our sagging eyes and our uh, old face and, and all that kind of stuff. And we're like, well, we don't really need that. But we went in anyway and sat down and, and he kind of put the stuff on our eyes and wanted us to be amazed at how different that we looked. And uh, we said, no, we're not, we're not gonna spend whatever it was, 600 bucks on, on uh, a facelift that we don't need. But for the next several hours, we walked around the French Quarter and we had, it felt kind of like uh, super glue under our eyes that were kind of, holding everything up. It was kind of a weird feeling. But the French Quarter at night is a very evil place. In fact, even during broad daylight, as we were eating lunch on a balcony, there was a group of men on the other balcony across the street and I wasn't facing them, but Lori was, was facing this group of men and they were hooping, hooping and hollering as women were walking by. Under This is in broad daylight at noon and uh, some beads were exchanged. Pergamum was filled with people who were living in the deception of the evil one's influence. Their hope was in uh, a pole or a statue rather than in the one and only true high God who could in fact help them in their time of need. The evil one was, was hard at work, is hard at work, he never rests. He, he doesn't care if we worship the stars, the statue, or sports for that matter, as long as we don't worship and as long as we don't bow down to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the New Testament church, the God of every person who places their faith and trust in him alone to save. He doesn't care as long as we are distracted and deceived. Verse 12 says this, to the angel, messenger of the church of Pergamon, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. To the church of Pergamum, Jesus' title, remember he has a title for every church, is sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus introduces himself as the one who will come and deal with a divided city by fighting against the false teachers, by fighting against the false gods. The governor of Pergamum had the official right, I want you to hear his power, as the, as the champion of the, of the cultic influence to act as the one who had the right of the sword. In other words, he had the right to execute anyone that he desired at any given moment. And while that position carried a lot of power, obviously, Jesus comes along and introduces himself as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. As though to say, oh, you you think you have the sharp sword. Let me introduce myself. Uh, This city possessed the right of capital punishment for the entire area. 
So now put yourself there for a second. For the believer that was living in Pergamum in that day, as you might imagine, days were tense. Nights were, were filled with fear. How long would it be before the governor would order all Christians to be killed? How long would it be before he turned against all of those who refused to worship his false God? Now you can see why this particular title of Jesus might be comforting. The sword symbolizes divine judgment, the ability to separate truth from untruth. And we see that in Hebrews 4.12, and just a little paraphrase of what happens in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God can represent the written word scriptures, the living word, Jesus Christ himself, and the spoken word. The spoken word of God is what is being spoken of here in, in, in Hebrews. The word of God has the ability because of its truth to judge as with all, an all-seeing eye and the ability to penetrate the depth of a person, the most darkest and inner parts as to separate bone from marrow. It's that fine. It's that sharp. God's word has the ability to cut away any non-truths that you might believe in. His word and only his word can divide that which is real and true from that which is unreal and false. So in Pergamum, uh, the evil one had the people right where he wanted them. Many were given into this, the false hope of these false gods and today the evil one is gaining as he has the uncanny ability to get people to live in his deception. The Bible says, if you are not for me, you are against me. It doesn't say if you're not for me, you're kind of against me or you're, or you're somewhere in the middle. Some pretty strong words. If you are not for me, the only other option is that you are against me. The church in Ephesus lost her first love. The word Pergamum means additional marriage. I picture it kind of like having an affair on God. Affairs are secretive, sin done in private, two people living in lies, two people that have given into the deceit of the evil one. While on the outside, life appears to be normal and affairs often referred to as cheating on your spouse or many are cheating on God. God's word penetrates the heart and it, and it divides. The evil one had a stronghold in Pergamum and the people were surrounded by Satan's influence and by Satan's deception. Satan is hard at work. He is attacking the family today. He is luring people away from God using busyness, using power, using pride. He's attacking the family by confronting us with decisions that demand an answer. Is this blank, you fill in the blank, is this blank right or is it wrong? He's working overtime in schools to remove any hint of God from textbooks, lectures, prayers. He's gaining ground in our culture, in our homes, in our lives. God says that his word, his word, 
is the double-edged sword that will divide right from wrong, good from evil. And the only way we can know as a church and as a family and as an individual whether or not we, we are cheating on God, so to speak, is to invite his sword, is to be able to say, okay, use your sword, Jesus, to divide and to cut away all that we've compromised. I think I've told this story a few years ago, but it fits so well here again. At my last church, we were experiencing a, a spiritual attack. It was a hard season. It was a season when I felt as though, as scripture just, uh, kind of describes that we were being sifted. It was one thing after another. I remember one day wrestling and asking the question, okay, what has changed? What is different? What are we doing right now that, that we didn't used to do? Then it dawned on me, and you may think I'm crazy when I tell you this, but, but I have to explain it a little bit. Just a couple of months before we were experiencing this attack, we had bought a new drum set. Now before those who are kind of like anti-drum say, I knew it, we shouldn't have drums in the church. That's not what I'm gonna say here. <clears throat> We'd bought a new drum set. And I asked our worship director at the time, where did we get the drum set from? I remembered um, it was from a band that was from the area that was um, kind of a famous band and a famous drum set. And he told me, we bought the drums from a band called Slipknot. <laughs> no, it's great. It's not great, but thank you. I went immediately and did some research. And what did I find? Slipknot was a heavy metal band formed in the Des Moines, Iowa area in 1995 by a percussionist and a drummer. They are extremely evil and vile they use the number 666 and flash signs and symbols of Satanism. And I went to our worship director and I said, let's get rid of the drum set. He said, okay. So we got rid of it and bought another drum set. And guess what happened? The attack subsided. I am a firm believer of the evil one's presence and influence. Whether or not evil spirits can attach themselves to physical items is, is debated. Whether that's true or not, it's yet to be understood. But what we do know is that items that were used in evil settings have become in some supernatural way a pathway for the presence of evil. I could, you may think I'm crazy. I could still remember um, we go on missions trips and we bring home items. I, I can still think of the, the swords and the, the knives that we'd bring home to our kids and stuff. And, and, then, and then as we would talk or as we were praying, we're like, you know what? Those, those things came from countries that are very, very evil. And so we just would purge stuff. God wants everyone who calls on him for salvation to live in a relationship and faithfulness to him, where there is cheating 
There is forgiveness and grace. Secondly, take comfort, verse 13. I know where you live, he says, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, but my faithful servant and witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Jesus says to them, I know where you live. Ever wonder where that, where that statement kind of came from? We use it all the time, right? We use it kind of in a joking way sometimes. Hey, I know where you live. But when God says, I know where you live, it's both comforting and a little bit startling. Uh, this is a great indicator that God knows what we're faced with. That's kind of what he's communicating here. I know where you live. I know what's going on around you. I know what you're faith with. He, faith, faced with. He says to the Christians in Pergamum, I know that you live in a place where the evil one has a very solid stronghold, a place where most people are worshiping false religions and false gods. I am aware of your struggle to live in truth every single day. I'm aware of the pressure to give in and to cheat on me. I am aware of what you're going through. I'm aware of your struggles. I'm aware of the temptations that you face and that the struggle to take a stand for what is pure, true, and lovely is not always easy. Yet, he says to them, you remain true to my name. They refuse, most of them, to worship Caesar. The sword was the symbol of the Roman proconsul and God's message to them was that it is more important for you to fear the sword of the Lord than the sword of the Romans. In the face of of threat, the believers remained faithful in their worship of God. For one, to announce themselves as a follower of Christ will no doubt create hostility. And the name of Jesus Christ, even to this very day and always will, divides. The name of Jesus divides. The name of Christ draws a line. The evil one hates the name of Christ, as does a nation who would rather live in her own pleasures than bow before God. And he says, you did not renounce your faith. In the face of false worship and rampant evilness, the Christians, majority of them, kept their faith. Antipas, who was mentioned here, was the first martyr in Asia. Tradition tells us that he was slowly roasted in a bronze kettle. Despite what they saw and were faced with, they remained faithful. While Satan had not yet been, uh, been able to destroy them, he was making progress by making inroads as the great deceiver. Uh, number three, stand strong, verses 14 through 16. He goes on and says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So he always offers these corrections. I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. The evil one, if you're not already aware of this, is very, very sly and very subtle. And, we, and, and scripture teaches us, like in Ephesians chapter six, we always have to be on guard. Balak had a way with the Israelites and before they knew it, they had fallen into this mentality of, if you can't beat them, join them. In other words, the culture around you, it's like if you can't beat them, if you can't stand against them, then just do what they're doing. 
They had given in to compromise and found themselves eating at idolatrous altars and committing fornication as a part of religious rites based on this influence of Balaam. Verse 15 and 16. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. How did it end? 24,000 people died because of a disobedient act of compromise. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, the Nicolaitans, this was a group of the compromising people who began to make their way into the church fellowship, who began to uh, infiltrate the church. And Jesus hated their doctrine and he hated their practices. The name of Nicolaitans means to rule the people. What they taught was the doctrine of Balaam. And the reason this even applies is because there was a group of people in, the Pergamum, in Pergamum who saw nothing wrong with befriending Rome. And then later developed the attitude, I mean, come on. What's a little incense on the altar of Caesar? What's it gonna hurt? It was subtle. They were beginning to own the attitude of, what will it hurt? What exactly does it mean to compromise? That's what this whole message is about, this letter to Pergamon. What does it mean to compromise? It means to settle. Let me equate compromise to a line in the sand. If you would just imagine for a second that you're standing on a beach somewhere and you take your heel and you just, you drag your heel through the sand, maybe 10 feet, 20 feet, and you know, just a few inches, a few inches deep and you kind of draw this line. Compromise happens when we have previously drawn a line saying, I will never cross this line because it's a boundary or it's based on the word of God, it's a conviction based on the word of God. So compromise happens when we have previously drawn a line in the sand or using that as an analogy, I will never cross this line. This is what I believe to be right and godly based on my study of God's word. We've established the line, we have convictions, then the evil one comes along and from many different angles in our life, he seduces us. He lures us. He gets us to enter into negotiations. Places of doubt in our mind, as he did with Eve in the garden. You remember what he said? Is that really what God said? He works on us and works on us until we say, what's the big deal? When a previously drawn line becomes fuzzy, a compromise has set in. I equate the, the seduction of the world to the wind on the beach. So you've drawn this line and you've dug in a little bit and you say, I'll never cross that line. And, the, and then just over time, the wind comes and little by little, that line eventually just kind of fills in and eventually just kind of disappears to the point you can't even see it anymore. Have you ever drawn a line thinking you would never cross it based on your convictions? And now the line is undefined, you can't even see it. You see how sly the evil one is? The evil one is so good at seducing us and filling in a once established line based on God's word of conviction. Has the line been blurred in any area of your life?
For the church at Pergamum, it had become blurred as they eventually compromised to the point of worshiping Caesar like everyone else was done. But the beauty of the whole thing is this. The lines can be redrawn and the boundaries recreated and the convictions reclaimed. As we seek God to search our hearts, as we seek God to, to, to search our lives, we can reestablish and establish for the very first time a line that is based on God's word. God is a good God. And he's willing to forgive and he's willing to extend grace. A blurred line doesn't mean that there's no hope. A blurred line doesn't mean that we have to live in guilt and shame. It just means that we have to dig our heel in once again. Never enter into negotiations with the evil one. You will almost always lose. Know ahead of time what you believe. Know ahead of time what is truth. Know ahead of time what God's word says about certain things because when Satan comes to you and seduces you through the world, say to him, here's the line, step back. For the believers in Pergamum, it was a matter of learning to live in the world and not be a part of the world. And the same is true for us today. God knows the pressure that we face as Christians to, to live a life of compromise. He knows full well what right from wrong decisions we face every single day with his strength and his strength only. Only his strength, friends. Listen, can we stand strong? You cannot do it in the flesh. Fourth, be encouraged, verse 17. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I will give some of the hidden manna in reference to the manna that fell from the sky when the Israelites were traveling through the desert, in reference to Jesus, a foreshadowing of Jesus, who is the bread of life and I will give a white stone. I read this past week six different interpretations of what that could possibly mean. And the best one is probably this. I will give a white stone. A white stone was given to somebody who, who was involved in the games and they would win a race or, or an activity or, and, and, and they were handed this white stone and it had their name written on it and that white stone became their ticket to the awards banquet. Jesus promises the overcomers entrance to the eternal victory celebration in heaven. And the new name most likely refers to the Holy Spirit's work of conforming us believers to the holiness of Christ. The one thing is this, run to win. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 says this, You've all been to the stadium and seen the athletes race. Everyone runs, one wins, run to win. All good athletes train hard. They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. 
You're after one that's gold eternally. I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything I've got. No lazy living for me. I'm staying alert and in top condition. I'm not going to get caught napping, telling everyone else all about it, and then missing it myself. What is it saying? Stay faithful, friends. Don't compromise. Don't cheat on God. 